Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hello, and welcome. Hi, this is Visual Workplace Radio, and I am Gwendolyn Galsworth, your host on this, our weekly radio show, about letting the workplace speak. And each of our shows, we explore, we describe, we celebrate the principles and practices, the concepts and tools, the methods and strategies, people and results of workplace visuality, of the technology, I beg your pardon, of the technologies of the visual workplace applied and also defined, and how they help us let the workplace speak, achieve informational transparency, and marvelous cultural alignment, a robust, spirited employee engagement on all levels of the enterprise, not just value-add associates, but everyone, you too. (laughs) So, welcome. And drop us an email with your comments, your photos, your stories, your questions at radio at visualworkplace.com and visit us on our website, visualworkplace.com. Lots of free educational materials there, other podcasts, as well as articles, and in a little while, more of everything. I am really glad you took time during your busy day to listen in. I'm delighted that you're interested in letting the workplace speak. So, what we are talking about now, we are in the midst of a series on visual leadership, and today should advance that. The last time we met, we looked at visual leadership on the executive level. Today, we're going to look at it on the supervisory front slash manager level. So I want to say a few opening remarks before we get into the supervisory construct. We are in, in my 10 doorway model, what's called doorway four, how executives and managers, supervisors, use visuality to govern, direct, and limit themselves so they can govern, lead, and direct others. There are many tools, and we'll be naming them in a little while and then describing them in future shows. But this is a developmental deployment level. When we are in the visual leadership doorway, we are either developing leaders of improvement or we are supporting leaders of improvement. You may remember my story at Akibono Break when we asked them, I was on a study mission many, many years ago with a group from Dana, and we asked them the ratio after a marvelous tour, by the way, we asked them the ratio between supervisors and operators. And the response was from the plant manager, we have no supervisors. So we changed our language and we said, okay, what's the ratio between team leads and uh, operators? We have no team leads. And so we reached for, well, what's the ratio between managers and operators? And he said again, we have no 
this time managers. We were really confused. We thought, well, maybe it's a language difficulty. And so finally we asked the question, well, what do you have? (laughs) Is it completely flat, one molecule thick? And the gentleman, the plant manager, he said, no, we have none of those titles. We have only a single title for our executives, our managers, and our supervisors, team leads. And that title is a leader of improvement. That is the only category of staff that we have. I was stunned by that, and I think the people in in the Dana group were also stunned. But mine lasted about 20 years. And I began to ask myself, actually across those 20 years, what are the implications of that and how is it done? How do you bring all members of management together, including the executive, under a single title? And how do you make that effective? Because this group of managers were obviously very effective. They had 67 parts per million internal defect rate and nothing external and not 66 and not 68, but 67. And I saw a a woman operator change over 11 machines in two minutes and 10 seconds, but wait a minute. She was making her final part while she was doing the changeover. So the changeover for 11 machines took zero time, things like that and on and on, really astonishing operational levels. And I played with this in my mind, and then I became active, and I realized that the structures and constructs of visual leadership could, in fact, help the supervisor, manager, team lead shift over to a new identity, and the executive shift over to a higher identity, each of them becoming a leader of improvement. And that's what this series is about. So many business owners, plant managers, CEOs, executives, team leads, supervisors, struggle with their role. They do not see themselves as leader. They, as leaders. They struggle with effectiveness, not, not as business maintainers, but they struggle with the idea of becoming a leader instead of just a maintainer or manager of business. Frankly, many do not make a sharp line of distinction between maintaining and leading. We discussed this in the first show of the series. This is the fourth show. So that distinction between maintaining and leading is the difference between a company just getting by and a company growing and competing, even if they are a tier one supplier, if they are beholden to an OEM, how do they grow the company? Okay. So this notion of leader of improvement, of leader as part of everyone's job description is a touchstone. Okay. So what does it mean to be a leader of improvement when you're an executive? What does it mean as a supervisor? What are the tools and the mechanisms for leaders of improvement who are executives, including plant managers? What are the visual tools that align with the leader of improvement on a supervisor and management level? I'm going to be grouping, by the way, managers and supervisors together 
So whenever I refer to a supervisor, I'm also referring to a manager. I'm kind of uh, ratcheting it down rather than up. So managers and supervisors will be called supervisors. I'll try to do both of them, but sometimes I forget. So what are the tools? What is the identity? What is the shift? How does that transformation happen? And how do these new roles and new tools interface and integrate so that the enterprise benefits and becomes potent and compelling? Compelling leadership from the shop floor to the boardroom. A single paradigm that has component applications. And this is the model that I've been building and testing out for now about 20 years, and very actively successful uh, with my client companies as well. If they want it, we have it and we do it. We call it the eye of the leader. Visual leaderships, I beg your pardon, visual leadership, the principles and practices of leadership, eye-driven, eye-driven. So, last week we spoke of a new identity for executives. This week we will look at the same kind of transition, the same level of transformation for supervisors and managers, a.k.a. supervisors. We want to keep these two groups separate and distinct, executives and then supervisors, managers, or supervisors, managers, then executives. And here's why, in a nutshell. Executives in this model are in charge of defining the corporate intent. And supervisors, managers, are responsible for implementing it. They are not in a definition role. They are in a deployment role. Of course there is collaboration. Influencing, shaping, reacting, responding working together, moving forward together between executives and managers and supervisors. Let me say, I hope there is. Let me say, there needs to be. But for the sake of the model, so that you can see quite distinctly the differentiation between the two, we want that line drawn. And that's what I'm doing in having last week about executives and this week about supervisors, managers. Once the identity is set and clear, then interestingly, and I love this, we apply the tools and the tools actually help the identity to shift because really identity begins to shift only when we can actually behave differently. And in order to behave differently in a highly pressurized setting, we need to have constructs. These are not choices that we exercise as much as tools that we learn to use and deploy and master that allow us to make that shift, that give us the room. This has been absolutely 100% my experience. I've experienced it on the operator level where operators are given the tools of visual thinking, the hard metric, the lever of motion, and they create visual devices. And as they do... As their work areas become more visual, the pressure begins to lift from them. The tools have established the visual wear for the operator, 
and the operator finds that he and she can kind of rest into their roles and get a lot more done with a lot less struggle, a lot less motion, and their identity begins to shift into an I-driven self-leadership. So it's a very congruent model. So I want to just kind of skim over what we said last week as the template or the uh, identifiers for the new identity for executives. And if you remember, it's in the shape of a um, hexagon with a center hexagon. So hexagon is six-sided, one in the center. We have six uh, connected hexagons and one in the center as the anchor. And the anchor for the executive is called lead. That is in the center of this kind of, you can think about it as petals or tiles. I've never called them petals before, so let's call them tiles the way I usually do. And so you have lead in the center, and you're going now from 12 o'clock until 12 o'clock noon back to 12 o'clock midnight. So at 12 o'clock, we have decide, 2 o'clock, we have align, 3 o'clock, inspire, 4 o'clock, drive, 8 o'clock, verify, and 10 o'clock, grow, and then we're back to decide again. Okay, so the structure itself, and it is why I've chosen the hexagon, is so felicitous because when we see this cluster, these six elements clustering around the anchor element of lead, we understand that even though the behaviors are differentiated, they all are integrated as well. They're integrated at the same time. They're connected, and there is a sequence. There is a sequence. And when we move into the tools, as we will next week for executives and in the next show, you will see how these tools help are actually designed to um, assist the executive in deciding and then aligning. Those are two very important components and then driving. Okay, so we will we will map those out. And the executive tools in uh, broad strokes are, first of all, the OSIT, which is my name for the temple or the house, but it has many it has many more and very important layers to it. OSIT is Operation Systems Improvement Template. The, to, the second tool is the X-Type Matrix, which some of you are familiar with and I am completely enamored of, intoxicated with. I've had nothing but success with it. So that might be interesting for you to listen in if you have been somebody who's been struggling with the X-Type or wondering what all the hubbub is about. I would contend it's because you have not been well-trained. But I could be wrong. And then the third tool is the war room. So the temple or the OSIT, X-type matrix, and the war room. Those three tools working together in a kind of sequence will turn an aspiring executive into a really superb leader. I have seen it happen again and again. So that's a summary of the executive tile array, the executive identity. We're shifting from being just a kind of a manager and coping and moving the data around and uh, looking to the data for clues about what I should do next to someone who is really forging a direction and following it with great, great will and uh, passion. 
The tile array or the construct for supervisors, managers, answers the questions the question of what do supervisors do? What is their job? Is that job the same in companies pursuing the new excellence as those who are traditional? What is the new role for supervisors? Why is it pivotal and transformative? How do they move from being logistical expediters to leaders of improvement, a rather revolutionary principle that in fact is designed to trigger a deep cultural shift in your whole layer of managers and supervisors. When they learn and adopt this new role, this wider identity, in fact, everything changes and for the better, including themselves based on their own assessment. No one's watching for them to get better or just looking for better behaviors better supervisory behaviors, okay? So the new job description is a replacement for the old way and has a powerful counterpart, as mentioned last week, for executives, but the tiles are different. And the tools, let me just name them now, and we'll get to them when we finish with the executive tools. It's really hard to kind of organize this into a linear series of shows because there's so much about it that is interactive, that would better be covered in a four-hour session as compared to uh, four one-hour sessions, which is essentially what we're doing. Supervisory, managers' tools, visual displays, visual scheduling boards, metrics that drive, which are different than metrics that monitor, and structured problem-solving going hand-in-hand with those metrics. And then something, the third tool is the roadmap. Very friendly version of the corporate intent. So, let us continue. Let us move to our supervisory uh, construct. And as I describe this, please consider the supervisor leadership profile and ask yourself, is this construct, is this thinking a departure from what I'm currently doing, what my company is currently expecting from me? Or are we already on our way? Maybe we're calling it by other names. Maybe it's not quite as crystal clear, but we're definitely shifting to a new job description. And if you are shifting to a new job description, then ask yourself, do you want to go further? Do you want to go much further? Do you want to incorporate some more thinking into this? Or the flip side of that is, what's the trade-off if you stop now? Or if you haven't begun, if you decide not to begin? Okay. I know some of these decisions are not in uh, your own control, but I will tell you there's a lot of components here that should serve, I think, as food for thought for you to consider making some shifts yourself, even if your company isn't quite ready to support you or doesn't have a clear definition of what they want instead of what you're doing now. Yeah? Okay. So, let's talk about the way things are now with most most supervisors and most managers. And in fact, one of the things that I'd like you to do is to think about your own job description. What is that job description? And 
do you like it? And within that job description, how do you define your emotion? What is within your job description moving without working? Do you, for example, spend a lot of time answering questions? Is your identity really closely mapped out to the questions you are asked, those questions that you have to be prepared to answer almost all the time? Because if they are, if you are kind of questions-driven, or if you're the answer man or woman, you've got a pretty good clue that you are not yet visual. Because, you know, in the visual workplace, we take those questions and the answers as motion. We consider them to be the waste of missing answers, of answers that are not visual, of answers that are not embedded. We see it as, a, as the enemy because it's information deficits, missing information. So think about if your job is an awful lot about asking questions and answering questions that you may in fact be able to put yourself, to peg yourself as a kind of traditional manager or supervisor. It's just important for you to realize it. Where do you stand? Your job description might sound something like this. Manage. Attend to logistics, schedule, expedite, fight fires, and monitor everything. So let me say that again. Attend to logistics, schedule, expedite, fight fires, and monitor everything. Does that sound like your job? If it does sound like your job, I know you're working very hard. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Very hard, perhaps harder than you want to work. And perhaps things kind of run away by themselves. That is a kind of typical job description of traditional supervisory management work. And what we're going to do as we shift over to the new construct is simply replace that as the center tile. The center tile may right now be that, that type of managing, expediting, fighting fires, and monitoring everything. Replace that in the new construct with a tile called improve. Your focus instead is on and I'm going to read it to you. That is, I want the description to be very clear. Reduce operational waste as the core part of your work. You're going to do it through people and increase the value and quality of the company's processes, performance, and people. So through people, your job is improvement. Improve is the anchor element of the seven behavioral elements that describe and define the new supervisor. Improve. And I'm going to scan through what the, what the rest of it is from 12 o'clock noon to 12 o'clock midnight, and then we'll go through each one of them and see if it's clear, if it makes sense to you. And by the way, you will still, for quite some time, still need to expedite, fight fires, You're still going to have to attend to the schedule and change it very, very often. You're still going to have to attend to the logistics of the work, 
until the transition is made. It takes a little bit of time, but it is the right direction in my view. So the seven R, we have improve at the center, and then at 12 o'clock, stabilize. I'm going around the clock now. Stabilize, measure, target, problem-solving, coach, and model. 12 o'clock is stabilize, 2 o'clock is measure, 4 o'clock is target, 6 o'clock is problem-solve, 8 o'clock is coach, and 10 o'clock is model. That's the new job description. That's the new identity. Your very first job is to stabilize. Let's go through them. Stabilize means implement processes that embed logic and adherence in day-to-day work. If you've begun your standard work, you're off to a great start. In visuality, that also means implementing the visual wear. On the operations level where you are a supervisor and manager, you need to have the visual wear in order for your operational landscape to be clarified and to be stable. You're also going to implement visual standards. So the visual wear is doorway number one. You do it through operators. Visual standards, which is doorway number two. You're going to be publishing accurate, complete, and timely standards. You'll be working with engineers on this. That's your job as a supervisor manager. So you do that as well. That's part of stabilizing that first tile right after. My job is about improvement. What's the first thing I need to do? I need to stabilize. And yes, I know that's hard. But you can't go on without working on that foundational level. And then the third piece is the visual either the visual display or visual scheduling, a major, major tool that you are not only in in control of, but that is fabricated for you to support you in your role and in your new role as a leader of improvement. These visual displays will go into the tools in detail, but right now that is the genesis and that is the um, meaning of the first action you got to get stable. you got to bring your environment into stability. And that takes a long time. It can take you six months. It really can, but you can get started tomorrow. It's best to have good methodologies. It's best to move forward with, um, what's a good word for this, with intention and with, um, with system, doing it step by step. But that's what the first layer is all about. As I mentioned, standard work is also part of that array, and you've probably started that. You've probably started to document your standard work. I want to say as an aside about the standard work, it's really important not to think you can get this done completely the first go-round. In fact, the way the methodology works, I just got back from Poland and we had a discussion about this. The the Polish people are under undertaking uh a manager, a manufacturing revolution. They are absorbing all of the knowledge that has landed and been developed in the West, and they're bringing it to their country, which is blooming, which is budding after the uh, rule of communism. It's really coming into its own very, very rapidly and, and, and impressively. And we had a conversation about standard work, and I just want to mention, in case it's meaningful for you as a listener, that when we do standard work and we don't really want to do it because we feel that's the work of 
of lean. We don't want to get too involved, but when we are brought into it, we do it in three cuts. This is the way we learned it from Toyota, and this is the way we teach it. You do your first rough cut standard work. You get your chunks in place, big chunks of um, common agreed upon steps, and you run that for a month or two easily, just in chunks. And then you go through another iteration and you do second cut standard work, which is to, to squeeze some of the air out, squeeze some of the time out, get the steps more refined. You still don't have precision, but you can keep working. And now you have a closer accounting of what the steps are and how much timing is involved. And then you move to third cut. You can move to third cut after a year so that you're not disrupting the process by changing everything in order to have a very squeezed out process, a very refined and elegant process. You can take a year to do this. If you're in a hurry, do it in seven or eight months. But that's where standard work comes in. It's stabilization. When you complete that so that you can feel the stability, it doesn't have to be complete in terms of finished but there's enough of a foundation in the first step, your next job is to monitor. Now, you're already going to be monitoring. You're already going to be using your key performance indicators to monitor daily performance. Now, what we'd like you to do is just pay more attention to that that monitoring, that measurement, and see it in reference to the stability. Measure the stability so that you can see if you are stable enough to grow it. Measuring is really important. As you know, it helps people see what winning means and what losing means. They want to know the score. And once you give people the score, and the score is dynamic and easy to access and connected with the work itself, we're moving on to the second element. The third, if you don't count the anchor. So it's improve, Stabilize, measure. Once you've measured and you see a kind of repeatability, even if you have low stock, high complexity, there's still stability, then you can begin to build on that and go down and begin, let's just say, begin to build on it. I'm going to get ahead of myself. The next step is to look at those measures and to target your job as supervisor, and you'll be getting direction from your boss, from the leader of improvement on the executive level who might be the plant manager, about what should you target, what does he or she want to see changed. Focus improvement activity on mission-critical operational objectives, not on everything. So you can continue to collect the metrics, the KPIs that you've been doing even before you started making a shift to a leader of improvement because somebody wants them, you're going to have to collect data on them. You pay attention to your measures and then you choose one as a target. You target, and my suggestion is always just target one of them because that one will produce a great deal of activity since you already have a highly integrated system called your work in that work area, even if it's not going well, 
there are still factors, dynamic factors that are impinging and impacting each other. So you have a system. There is a built-in feedback loop. It may not be intentional, but the elements are there. Then target one of them and watch it behave. You can do that through a hit list. You help people stay focused on a critical indicator in their area. You watch it behave, and you move pretty much immediately to 6 o'clock, the fifth element. And that element, I beg your pardon, the fourth element, is problem solve. You need to adopt a step-by-step process that identifies bad cause and good cause and good cause, bad cause and good cause, and builds robust solutions. Adopt a step-by-step process that identifies causality and helps you build robust solutions, which you will then, of course, embed visually into the living landscape of work. My favorite tool for that, of course, is scoreboarding, which is a tool that I developed, um, let's say I developed for the West based on CDAC, Ryuji Fukuda's cause and effect diagram with the addition of cards. I spent 10 years of my life on that, and I love the tool. It needs to be adapted for the West. The way Fukuda did it is just far, far beyond the reach of the Western mind or really the Western appetite. There are some circumstances where a pretty exact replica of the CDAC approach will work. I've modified it with Fukuda's permission, with Dr. Fukuda's permission, uh, into something called scoreboarding. And, And it works very, 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 very well for going down the causal chain. I want to make a comment now on A3. I have not found, it's very popular everywhere, maybe even in your company, I have not found A3 to be a very um, useful problem-solving tool. I think administratively it's extremely useful for keeping a catalog or a list of all of the open projects and what you're looking to improve across the site or across the company. It's very useful administratively. But it isn't wide enough, in my experience, to catch the array of causes that contribute to the problem. There are very, very few problems that have silver bullet solutions. Most of those are technical problems where you would be better served with something like design of experiments by Taguchi rather than um, uh, the so-called Uh, problem solving of A3. In fact, most problems are not um, solved by walking down the five whys. That's a very elementary form of bringing you into thinking about cause and connected cause and the causal chain. Why, why, why five times? But you know, um, if you put the, a bad lube into the into the calendar and the calendar seized, then it, it's the bad lube's f- fault. But if you're not meeting your production goals or you're producing defects, the machine is producing defects or anything comparable to that, you've got multiple causes and you need a wide frame to catch it. I love scoreboarding. It has a very wide frame. We'll probably spend one or two sessions on on talking about scoreboarding, but later on, much later on, 
on probably not as part of this series. But that's the problem-solving part tied directly to your measure that you've targeted. You've targeted a measure, and now you're going to go after its solution with this next piece of the, of the tile array. We are at 6 o'clock. You're seeing how this is working? These are tasks I would venture that many of you already do. My attempt has been to put them in an array so that they have an internal logic. And you know that once you reach a certain level or a certain position in the tile array, you know what's waiting for you next. You know what the expectation is. So you targeted the measure. Now you've changed the measure through problem solving. You're leveling out that measure. And now we move to 8 o'clock, the step after problem solve, which works perfectly with problem solve, which is to coach You coach people in their problem-solving thinking. You coach people in terms of visual thinking. You help associates focus and achieve the area's improvement targets and their own targets. They may have personal vendettas. They may really want to go after this or that. And you'll help them. You'll coach them. There's a difference between coaching and teaching. Let's talk about that. When we teach, we pass on, or in part, new knowledge. That's clear. When we coach, we help people use or apply that knowledge. Okay? So you're not teaching, but you're supporting and coaching and guiding and getting thinking to be a part of the daily life of the work area. Now, there are traditional coaches. I happen to have attended Indiana University when Bobby Knight was in his reign. (laughs) What a reputation he had. (laughs) Achievement through intimidation. I actually think he was a really good guy. I think he got some bad press, and he was a little bit too showy with his anger. And, you know, he made some mistakes. He just made some mistakes. There's no question about it. But he was a brilliant coach. And I think Bobby Knight needed a coach. I think he he needed somebody to to say, okay, rein it in there, Sonny, or let let it run, Sonny. This is the time for you to make some noise. So there are coaches like that, and we call that a traditional coach. We would call Bobby Knight a a coach who... uh, who influence through terror <laughs> and fear. <laughs> this is like our old definition of, um, of the boss, right? The bossy boss. But there's also traditional. So um, I beg your pardon, there's also operational excellent coaches or the new leadership coaches. And those men and women are still highly focused but they get their work done through others. That particular element of their skills matrix is to help others succeed by helping them shape their own responses, their own thinking. This is very much in line with the kata that Toyota is involved in. But remember, that's only one of seven elements. It's not everything. So if you're expediting logistics, 
all the other time and exercising kata uh, from time to time, then you're at, then it's out of balance. We've got a clash between um, paradigms. I'm thinking of this wonderful young man named Kevin who worked at Sears Home Repair, and he he was the person who uh, had to keep track of all of the inventory that came in in terms of vacuum cleaners, broken vacuum cleaners, and broken thises and broken thats, and uh, home appliances. And his place was a gazoo. And when we did uh, work that makes sense operator-led visuality together, for some reason he had a real struggle with it. And Ben, who was his supervisor, terrific guy, Ben Torres, Ben coached him and helped him achieve a really extraordinary outcome. And Kevin needed that support. He just needed the the support of someone who saw more clearly than he did temporarily in order to move forward, uh, so-called on his own. And uh, he, he he really achieved that victory because Ben went out of his way as part of his job, I should say, to help this young man. Your whole blitz format, your rapid improvement events are organized around coaching. And of course we have frequent ones in our visual conversion process. So there's a lot of opportunity for the supervisor to get involved and be very helpful. And also during the huddles, there's a completely wonderful way to run those huddles so they actually advance the cause of the operator We will perhaps talk about that, but none of this 30 people standing up while you hold a megaphone and you you say unintelligible things to them and then seven minutes, eight minutes later after we do some exercises, everybody goes back to where they were before. Please, that's not a huddle. That's not a tier one. Please don't do that. The next we are at 10 o'clock, approaching midnight, and that is to model Turn others into self-leaders by showing how you apply leadership principles and practices to your own work. Model. That is at 10 o'clock. Model. Turn others into self-leaders by showing how you, as a leader of improvement, apply principles and practices of leadership to your own work. Mm -hmm. And my unending model for that model is... Winston Churchill, who for me won the Second World War because others were always watching him and he knew it and he always allowed himself to be the person from whom they could learn how to be brave, how to be courageous, how to never give in. By the way, he didn't say never give up. He said never give in, never give in. He was modeling under the most extreme duress. And he was doing it very intentionally with his distinctive hat and his big fat cigar in his mouth and his roly-poly figure everywhere, all over the ruins of London, everywhere, on the battleships, everywhere, in every field. I'll tell you about, um, I think we have time for this, about something that a gentleman named Armando Botti did. He was plant manager at Delphi in Matamoros, Delphi Deltronicos, an extraordinary plant. And what he said is, 
Now, he's an executive, but he wanted his supervisors and managers to get the habit of improvement, and he was looking for a way to get them involved in improvement that would be small enough that it could be done on a monthly basis, whatever they did. It could be noticed on a monthly basis, and Armando could hold his very busy managers and supervisors accountable. So he rigged up a board. He put the names of all of his managers and supervisors on this board, 40 or 50 names. He left a little space for two photographs. The first photograph was the before. The second photograph was the after. And your assignment as a supervisor manager so that you could learn to model, so you could be a model. The focus was take a picture of something that you will improve during the next month that is small enough for you to be able to do it on your own with no extra resources and then improve it. And no, it can't be your desk. It has to be operational. It has to impact others, be a benefit to others. Take a picture of it at the beginning of the month and then just pin a picture up at the end of the month. No words need to be shared. Just show me. This was Armando, Armando's approach. And what was marvelous about this particular highly visual approach was that he could tell at a glance who had already selected. He didn't have to look at a report. He just came to this board. It was about a five-by-five five board. He came to this board. He saw the photograph. And if there were any spaces, he would know immediately who wasn't yet on board. He would see the photographs at the beginning. And then he would see the photographs at the end. And not only was he grooming his uh, staff to become models of the improvement that they said they wanted, but he was also uh, building an accountability format that they could also use, a simple, highly visual format. So he, as a leader, was helping leaders contribute to the leadership direction of this wonderful Delphi plant. So that's what we mean by model. That has some creative edges to it, but it is still a requirement for the profile of a leader of improvement on the supervisory management level. You do not design the corporate intent. Your executive does, but you are responsible for deploying it And the plant needs a way to say to supervisors and managers, this is the job description that we are about. This is your true job description, and we are moving in this direction. Let me give you a few little clues about how to use this. I I want to say to you that when we start talking about what I call the OSIT, the house, it's Gwenny's house, it's not... Toyota's house, and I like my house better, but the house, there'll be principles involved there, operational principles, and those principles will be important tools for the executive leader. So I just want to mention there are some other impacts and inputs into this supervisory role that the executive will undertake, more or less the way uh, Armando Botti did in the example I just described. But I wonder, now that we're drawing uh, to a close on this profile, what you think of it. Is this thinking a departure from what you're doing? Or 
Are you involved in it? Hmm? Are you thinking about maybe checking your strengths against it, against this profile, against what you already do today, checking your strengths, and maybe saying, how do I feel about those seven elements? Improve, stabilize, measure, target, problem-solving, coach and model. Do I do those things? Do I do it well? Could I get involved in doing it? Could you, in fact, get involved in doing it? Could you maybe take those seven and, on a scale of one to ten, see which ones you currently have strength in, which ones you think that you're pretty darn good at? Did I say stabilize? I hope I said stabilize, stabilize measure. I think I did. Maybe have a conversation. So now I'm actually giving you a little protocol. This is what you can do with these seven. And plant managers, if you're there, this is what you can do with those se- with these seven. You can say, how do you think you're doing against these seven? Do you think you have strength? Why don't you scale it on a scale of one to ten? And while you're at it, pick somebody, maybe you're in a group, maybe you're in a room, somebody in the room who can be your buddy and talk to your buddy about this, about where are your strengths and where are his or her strengths. Just talk about it and we'll report out in a little while. And then maybe take it to a next step. Say, you know, I want to work on this. Maybe it's all new to you. It's fine. I want to work on this piece. I just want to see what it means I'm not going to do anything that has a big achievement at the end of it, but I want to try out what would happen if I have this orientation, if I think about targeting of all the metrics. If I I know we're not stable yet, and I know I'm not measuring anything particular yet, that you're giving me all the measures, all the metrics, they're all yours and not mine, but do I have one that I particularly like? Do I want to pursue it? And do I want to do some structured problem-solving? I wonder what kind of methodologies are around. I don't know what Gwendolyn is talking about when she says scoreboard, but we've got this pretty good process. It's called 4D, or maybe it's called basic problem solving, something like that, BP. I'd like to try that out. Nobody needs to know except me and my buddy and maybe maybe the boss that I just want to try this out, sir. I just want to see what happens. And begin to do that so it doesn't have to turn into a formalized program that gets launched and gets audited. It's really hard to learn when you know an audit is just around the corner. But you do it kind of nice and easy. And if there's an executive listening, you can think about piloting it in that way, asking for two volunteers, two supervisors so they can be buddies. Hey, I'm looking for two people who want to kind of try out this model just to try it out, try it on for size, and report back to us. Oh, look, we have six people who raised their hand. Okay, let's do twosies, twosies, and twosies. And then we'll just have a conversation about this. I don't want to drive this right now. We've got humongous monthly goals facing us up through the end of the year. But I would like us to investigate. That's the way to do it, executives. Don't launch an initiative. I'm not saying that there's enough material here for an initiative, so don't even think about that 
you know how to train this. <laughs> All it is is words coming out of out of your radio, <laughs> as in visual workplace radio. But I do want you to think this seriously. Be, take this seriously because what we what we want to do is shift the identity from expediter, logistics manager, manipulator, firefighter, monitoring everything to a relationship with work and the people who work with you that has more growth potential, more developmental potential without getting over overly ambitious. So that that is the template for the seven elements of the new leadership on the manage, manager supervisory level. Please think about these things and please come next time to hear about the tools for the executive the OSIT, the X-type, and eventually the war room. Not right away. We're going to go from the OSIT to the X-type. Then we'll do supervisory tools. So there's a certain sequence here because we're going to do it as though it's a timeline and not just a list that Gwani's explaining. I've really enjoyed our time together today. I hope that it has been useful for you. I wish you so much success in all your endeavors and most especially on your journey to a visual workplace. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.